It's the biggest story in Ohio politics in a very long time. Rob Portman will not seek re-election. That's going to be the chief topic on this edition of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Chris Murnowski, and Jane Cahoon, whose minds are all reeling with the possibilities and ramifications of Rob Portman's big announcement. So let's get to it. Why isn't Rob Portman running for re-election to the U.S. Senate next year? Jane Cahoon, we all had our jaws on the floor with the big news that he's not going to seek a third term. Not in some ways surprising because he was in for one hell of a nasty fight. But still, this has big ramifications for the, the seat of government in Washington and for politics in Ohio. Why is he not going? Well, like many members of Congress who've left in recent years, Portman says... He, he cited partisan gridlock. He's he's 65 years old. He's also an avid outdoorsman who would who would like to spend more time in Ohio with his family. But he he told Sabrina Eaton in an interview after his announcement that he he said I just didn't want to commit to eight more years to to now you know to finish his term and then six more years. He said that's a long time and he said we live in this increasingly polarized country where members of both parties are being pushed further to the right and further to the left. And so that means less common ground. Of course, you know, his critics had a couple of things to say about that. N- number one, that he's one of the reasons for for partisan gridlock. And, and number two, that he, in fact, was afraid of a brutal primary fight, you know, against a Republican who would be coming at him from the right. But he, he insisted he wasn't worried about that. He said he and his strategists know how to win primaries. He made a point of saying that, you know, after his 2013 declaration of support for same-sex marriage, after his um, son came out as gay, he said, you know, these political armchair quarterbacks told him that that would sink him in the 2016 primary. And instead, he got 82 percent of the vote. You know, of course, he was running against a little known candidate. But um, this time around, you have to believe it would it would be somebody, you know, more well-funded and, and prominent. But let me, let, me, let me stop you. I know you got a lot more you want to go over, but, but I want to take this in turn. He talks about how he doesn't want to deal with partisan gridlock. But if you think back, he's been there for 10 years. So that would have been what, two years into Obama's first term? He, there was never a time when he was in Congress that didn't have partisan gridlock. I mean, mm-hmm. to say that it's worse now, is it? Is it worse now than than halfway through Obama's first term when he walked in? Obama might have had a couple of years where he got some stuff done, but by the time Portman got there, that was in abeyance. So I'm not I'm not sure I buy the the partisan gridlock. He's always dealt with partisan gridlock and like you said, he's a cause of it. He, you know, there were so many times we talked about Rob Portman and his failure to speak up and call out stuff that was wrong and his fealty to to Donald Trump that that I'm not buying that. I I yeah. even though he says we know how to win primaries, I'm not sure he knew how to win this primary. He's never been challenged by somebody saying you're not conservative enough while getting hammered from the left for being a a stooge for Donald Trump. So so let's talk about the 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 likelihood that he would have had a tough run. You had some things you wanted to say about that, I think. Well, yeah, I I think he would have um, had a tough run, but I I was I was just going to speculate uh, or at least comment on the speculation 
that somehow now that he's not running, that he's like unchained and he's going to be more free to go against his party or maybe even vote to impeach Trump. And I just don't agree with that speculation at all. I think he's going to be exactly who he has been. He does often work in a bipartisan way. In fairness, we should say that he he works with the senior senator, uh, Sherrod Brown, in on a number of issues to benefit Ohio. But he's basically a cautious conservative who votes with his party 90 percent of the time. And he's not known for rocking the boat. So I don't think we're going to see him suddenly start throwing throwing bombs. In fact, Sabrina Eaton did ask him about the impeachment issue. And to me, it was a signal that he is not voting for impeachment. He said, I'm going to listen to both sides, and but I'm concerned about the constitutionality of impeaching a former president and about the divisive nature of impeachment and the impact it's going to have on our country. We're too polarized and, and we need to heal. So to me, if you read between the lines there, he, he's He's going to acquit Trump. Right. I, I Look, I agree. I think what he did yesterday was get the heat off. I mean, part of the cynical part of me, I don't think this is why he did it. The cynical part of me thought he announces this now. He gets out of the limelight, gets out of all the, the fire that shot his way, and then announces he's running a year from now, and he gets a year <laughs> free of criticism. I don't think that's going to happen. No, oh, I really don't think he's going to do that. But we need to watch and see and make sure he gives back those campaign donations, he said, so that his war chest drops. But, but this takes him out of the crosshairs of everybody that has been focused on him because he's not running again. Right. So he right. can do, he can do what he's going to do with a lot less animosity because he's going to be a lame duck. But I, I'll be surprised. I mean, he should vote for the impeachment. I mean, what, what Donald Trump did is clearly an impeachable offense. We've never seen a president do anything like it. And, and a number of Republicans have stood up to say it. And, and every day we learn just how close we came to losing our democracy. And I think that's going to continue to come out. So by not voting for it, you're basically saying it was OK to come that close. Yeah, to he's going to do the old we need to heal, you know, kind of theme that's already being sounded by a lot of Republicans. And, oh, we can't unite, you know, if we if we do this. Portman did take the liberty to say that. He thinks the Republican Party should return to being more of a center-right party, focusing on things like jobs and the economy and and getting through the coronavirus crisis, you know, and we need to do these things in a way that's embracing, he said, not not turning people off to the party, you know, by bringing people into the party. And to me, that was a bit of a signal, like he's saying, OK, let's move beyond Trump. But that's that's about as far as he went there. Yeah, I know. But I think the more details that come out about what Trump did to try and take the election from the voters, it's going to become inescapable that something has to be done. There have to be ramifications for something like that. And he's going to be there. I'm not sure it gets the heat off in the end. I mean, I we certainly won't take the heat off. Um, <laughs> you know, if he if he, you know, does his normal sending us statements with lots of words that don't say anything, we're going to continue to point it out. And you would think he'd worry a little bit about his legacy. He does, you know, would you want to finish 12 years in the Senate and be looked upon as kind of a lapdog for, for, for those kind of causes, because that's where he's kind of headed. I mean, we, 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 our editorial board has been pretty critical of him ever since he got reelected because he did not represent the interest of Ohioans in fighting against some of the abuses of the Trump administration. He was Mr. Trump all the way. 
Well, you know, once again, he would say he he sort of couldn't win there. He's, he, you know, uh, getting criticized from the left for being, you know, Mr. Trump's lapdog and being criticized from the right for not being out there enough. So who well, knows? Well, can I say that it, it, it's, it's an interesting position to take to say that the party needs to recapture its center rightness as you're announcing you're going to step out the door. I mean, he's kind of captain center right. And, you know, he can he can say that the values of the party have changed and whatever, but he's sat there and watched it happen and 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 really never took the time to stand up for the values that he believes that that, you know, sensible conservative politics represents. And, I mean, none of these, I, you know, look at all of the people that left people like Paul Ryan and 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 all of the moderates who 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 just threw up their hands and said it wasn't worth it. And all slunk off to the private sector with their tails between their legs because they didn't want to speak up. They didn't want to tell the public hard truths about the kind of conservatism that they were being sold by Trumpism and that ilk. You know, I, I think, I think a lot of people took the coward's way out in this and, you know, I, I give him credit. He's 67. I, it's a hard job, whatever, but 65. he'll be 67 <laughs> when he leaves. When, when oh, he I get leaves. it. Okay. And, 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 and I, but I think that, there's something to be said for sticking around and standing up for principles that you claim the party needs to reclaim. Like it just, Although I, get it. I mean, he would be, you know, think about it. He'd be 73 if he, if he stayed through another term and, and he does, you know, he wants to do other things. He listed all the activities he'd like to do and be active. I mean, he's, he's clearly done his 30 years of public service, but, but I, I agree with what you're saying. We got to move on. It's this week in the CLE. Who are the likely Republican and Democratic candidates to seek Rob Portman's vacant seat in 2022? Jen Cahoon, we couldn't pack all this into one segment. There's too <laughs> much to talk about here. Lots of potential people will raise their hand. I was surprised at how quickly Lieutenant Governor John Houston said, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. Um, because <laughs> I'm going to talk to the governor. <laughs> I think he would be a, a very realistic candidate for that. He's, yeah. you know, he's built a reputation of trying to defend the indefensible unemployment system all the last year (laughs) (laughs) he's done it very well so uh so who else jane who who, yeah this reminds me of the conversation we had about the democrats who want marcia fudge's seat in congress it it would be easier to talk about who isn't interested (laughs) in this but and this isn't a case like when when portman um ran for the first time because George Voinovich had basically anointed him as his successor and and Portman's not doing that. He's not naming anybody as his heir apparent. But there are some more some prominent Republican names as like Houston and Congressman Jim Jordan and former state treasurer and Senate candidate Josh Mandel, who's been out of politics for a few years, but he's been sitting on this sizable federal campaign fund, about four million bucks. And um, and then the other one of the other names out there is is party chairman Jane Timken. So those are kind of some of the top tier ones floating well, around out there. Let, let, um, let's let's I was I was surprised at how many people were talking about Josh Mandel because I, I don't see him as viable. I mean, he you know, when he dropped out, dropped. I mean, he really left the Republicans in a lurch last time by dropping out. And then he, you know, secretly, quietly goes to another county and divorces his wife. I think he knows that 
there's some baggage there now. He betrayed the Republican Party, and after holding himself out as this Mr. Family Man Marine, he he, he tries to hide the fact that, that he's gotten divorced. I'm not buying that he's the viable candidate. I think he would have a harder time than others. But but Jim Jordan, I would not count him out. Chris. I don't count him out. I just I think he has a mountain to climb. You know, mm-hmm. in the past, he was Mr. Shiny Marine, you know, the uh, mm-hmm. Roger Ramjet, good guy. And, you know, I mean, he ran campaigns where he told nothing but lies, but but he had this image that I think is seriously tarnished. And I'm not sure the Republicans want to line up behind a guy who left them holding the bag so badly last time. I think they still think they could have beaten Sherrod Brown if they had had a stronger candidate. And, you know, they had no time to do it. And they ended up with... Um, uh, Jim Renacci. I mean, it was, which was kind of a joke. So, so I I mean, although he'd be in the, in the running, we'll get to him. Let's talk about Jim Jordan because a lot of people think it would be him. I I suspect he might have a hard time winning over all of Ohio because he's so controversial and he was such a serious supporter of Donald Trump. I guess it would depend on what Trump's legacy is two years from now. Yeah. I think it all comes down to the future of Trumpism with him. But I also think he's somebody he he seems to be getting a certain amount of delight about teasing about this. And I think, you know, what we're hearing is that he he doesn't really want this. He wants to stay in the House. You know, maybe he has visions of the Republicans taking over the House and him becoming speaker or whatever. But I but I think he likes his platform now. So, you know, he's being talked about both in the governor's race and now the Senate race. And don't know if really, you know, either one of those is going to be realistic for him. And as you said, it's really going to depend. He's so polarizing that uh, you just wonder his chances statewide, unless Trump is really still the big force that he has been. And, you know, he's won Ohio convincingly twice. So and then we have we have Jim Renacci, who who was trying to be right of Donald Trump in his <laughs> recent years. After being a guy that talked about, you know, working across the aisle, he completely ended that and became Mr. Trumpism. I was shocking is the day after the insurrection. Right. He was having a, a community meeting to start his campaign, I think, for for governor without announcing. So yeah. so he might run. But with the other names we're talking about, I, I would argue he's probably less viable. Yeah. What about Attorney General Dave Yost? He's testing the waters. Uh, I think he, he said he's going to run the traps and, and see. There's also talk about his uh, fellow state executive office holder, Secretary of State Frank LaRose. So maybe he's a possibility. So, uh, Larry Abhoff has even been mentioned, the the former Ohio Senate president who just stepped down because of uh, term limits. But and then on on top of all that, I, it's practically the whole Republican Ohio congressional delegation, you know, either reported to be interested or kind of suggesting they're interested. Mm-hmm. We got Steve Stivers, Mike Turner, Dave Joyce, Anthony Gonzalez, oh God, Brad Wenstra, Bill Johnson. <laughs> Wait, but the problem is, nobody, you know, outside the districts, nobody knows the Congress people. I mean, people for the last, what is it, two and two plus years and before really have gotten to know Dave Yost. And he's mm-hmm. he's championed the people in the first energy case, which is very popular. I mean, there's still a bunch of people in the state, the state legislature in particular, don't understand how angry Ohioans are about that case and the fact it's not repealed. So so he's got bona fides. And if he wants it, he's a smart guy. And and 
I would think he would be a serious candidate for that in a lot of ways, no? He would be running into the Houston machine, I think, if if Houston decides to run for it. You know, Houston is somebody, um, as you said, people might have the distaste for Josh, people like Josh Mandel and, and Jim Renacci, uh, and then maybe the Congress people aren't well known enough. And so you could see Houston as being the candidate that they they coalesce around. And LaRose, I think, would have some baggage because of his decisions on the election. I know he runs around saying, I ran a successful election, but we all know he really tried to prevent a lot of people from having means <laughs> of voting, and especially in the cities. Um, so I think he'd hit hit some serious challenges. Uh, I'd love to see the debates for that. Okay, let's go to the Democratic side. So not a lot of bench in Ohio for the Democrats. You got, what, Nan Whaley right. and Ryan, right? Yeah, I mean, the Democrats really are. They're itching for a chance to show that they can win a partisan statewide race after a couple of pretty brutal election cycles. And as I said, two strong showings by Trump in Ohio. But uh, you mentioned Nan Whaley, who's proven herself to be a really impressive leader and a rising star in the Democratic Party. The New York Times did a whole like interview with her right af- after Portman's announcement, a whole story about her. Um, and then Tim Ryan, of course, you know, what, uh, you know, has anybody flirted with higher office more often than Tim Ryan? I mean, it's like he ran for president briefly. Um, he tried to take on Nancy Pelosi to to lead the House Democrats. Uh, and then he's been rumored as, you know, governor and Senate before. But he his statement yesterday was said he is seriously considering this. So but, <laughs> unlike but all the other times, right? He had to resurrect the story that we that that uh, Seth Richardson had done, the, the headline of which was all the times Tim Ryan has seriously considered running for higher yeah. office. So. I, he also has the congressperson's problem that, you know, he's known in a part of the state and not all. Nan Whaley, as as a mayor, has managed to to take the stage, the statewide stage more effectively, probably than any any mayor going right now. I mean, everybody knows who Nan Whaley is that she she would be a very interesting candidate if she for had in the ring for that. She yeah, be, and she's close with with Senator Sherrod Brown. So I think that works to her advantage as well. And I think Sherrod Brown um, was one of the people who helped make Liz Walters the new Ohio Democratic Party chair. And so, you know, you got to believe she'd have a lot of support there. I, I think it's evidence of how weak the bench is for the Democrats. It's interesting that we have a candidate for mayor in Cleveland who's 34 and Justin Bibb that a lot of people are getting behind. And and I think part of the strategy is that, that Ohio needs to start using its mayor's races in cities to build the bench. I mean, if Justin Bibb won and served two terms, he'd be in his early 40s and then have the world at his feet because we just don't have a bench now. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does it mean that Cleveland is getting a $100 million innovation district aimed at the future of healthcare jobs? Chris Ranowski, you always get your, your, your antenna up when you see stories like this. It's like, what does it really mean? Right. You know, how much money is it? Is it really a hundred million? You know, the GCP put out a statement that it was more like 50 something million or 60 something million. What's this about? And, and what is the goal of it? We are getting a innovation district, which is sort of a, a partnership between all of the major health systems, uh, both of the the or all of the the big universities here in the city, 
and they plan to spend hundreds of millions of dollars as part of this initiative to to help lure in startups and develop a, a, a stronger base for uh, tech and healthcare jobs here in Cleveland. The the effort involves uh, state agencies kicking in about uh, $265 million, with $155 million coming from State Development Services Agency and $110 million uh, coming from Jobs Ohio. Uh, the interesting thing about this is that the project is the largest that Jobs Ohio, uh, which is the state economic development corporation, uh, has ever committed in terms of money and job creation. Much of the initiative will focus on researching infectious disease, including the coronavirus, which has killed more than 400,000 people in this country. And the goal is, of course, to bring uh, 20,000 jobs to Ohio within the next 10 years, capitalizing on the city's well-known medical research work uh, and to encourage it, more startups and companies to invest in the, in the city. Uh, half of those jobs will involve uh, work directly with the hospitals and the universities uh, in, in the healthcare and IT fields, and the other will be sort of indirectly related to it, according to uh, Governor Mike DeWine's office. So, so, so we heard about this yesterday. Mm-hmm. You, you had found a story that Eric Heisig wrote last fall about a Midtown Innovation District. Is there a connection? Not really. It's, it's, Innovation district is kind of a jargony government buzzword that cities in development corporation types sort of like to tout around. Um, that that is that is more related to to kind of real estate and and other things. This is this is more about a collaborative effort between all of the universities and and the hospitals. So so one is more the the one that was announced yesterday is not really geared toward developing a particular neighborhood within the city of Cleveland. It's more about creating this sort of universal network of, of shared resources and, and, and sort of a shared vision of the types of companies and, and investment capital they want to lure to Cleveland from outside of Cleveland. Uh, so it's a, it's a big investment by Jobs Ohio kind of in the future of healthcare jobs. Right. This is you know, I mean, healthcare is our big thing. And, you know, with the, the presence of three major hospital systems here, plus having research universities here that, it, you know, really kind of are siloed off from one another, you know, getting them together gives gives them more more power than they have, I think, on their own. And and when you look because at- They've others, always it, gotten along so well, right? Right. But, I, you know, but it is, it is, you know, when, if you're standing on the outside of Cleveland looking at it and, and you're being told like, well, you have to go and you have to talk to, you know, all six of these entities before it, it just, it makes it, it, it would be sort of like if we, if we were the type of region that would tout ourselves as the Cleveland Akron Metro region, you know, there's, there's more power in, in, in sort of viewing us as, as an economic region, as opposed to being, you know, these cordon off cities, you know, and, and, and taking Cleveland and taking Akron and all this stuff. I, I, it makes us more attractive from the outside. I, you know, I can say this as, uh, you know, St. Louis has something very similar to this, you know, where I'm from that was, that was sort of tied to uh, Barnes Jewish hospital and the other hospital systems there. And it actually did, result in a lot of, of, of new business and, and a lot of new companies coming in. So, and there's one in Cincinnati that is also kind of 
is more more like the one that was announced last fall that is more focused on one specific part of Cincinnati. But All right. So, Jane Cahoon, Emily Bamforth wrote an interesting piece asking, how can you start one of these in the middle of a pandemic uh, and talk to some people from across the country who said, yeah, that's a big challenge. Right. It is a big challenge. But on the other hand, there's uh, opportunity as well. Like during the pandemic, I think uh, in one of these other places where they did it to to sort of come together on the manufacturing issue to, you know, for the coronavirus. I think there was something involving masks. I think that was down in North Carolina, if my memory serves me correctly. But, you know, it yes, it's definitely a challenge because we've got people working remotely and separately. But at, at the same time, they're, you know, they got to look for opportunities. I guess the test is we'll have to come back five, 10 years from now and see what the result of this investment is. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Cleveland health officials offered a gloomy prognosis for how long it will take to vaccinate most people against the coronavirus. Laura Johnson, why is that? Because we don't have enough vaccine. Health Director Brian Kimball spoke to City Council's Health and Human Services Committee yesterday, said widespread vaccination is a long way off. They don't have the supply to meet the demand. Um, currently, there's about 15,000 Cleveland residents age 80 and older, so they would have been um, ready to be vaccinated last week. They only have about 5,000 doses for that back, that group. So, And that was among the 30 organizations in Cleveland providing vaccinations. So it's really tough that last week the city received 200 doses. They vaccinated residents at Collinwood Recreation Center. This week, they're only going to get 100. So yeah, that's not a great outlook. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to take forever at this rate to get this done. Although I, I saw that uh, Biden is increasing his goal to uh, $150 million or something like that in his first 100 days. So we'll have to see if they can ramp up the production. Sounds like Cleveland is ready. They just don't have the vaccine. Right. And they are starting. They're trying to work with the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, which is separate and on coordination with all the hospitals. I guess they didn't really have an overall plan of attack. What a shock. (laughs) It's like something you might have wanted to think about before the vaccine came. But yeah, think about if it's difficult now with this group of people, think about how hard it's going to be once it's mass vaccination for all age groups. Well, in other states, they're already moving to setting up centers and arenas and things, which Biden has talked about. I have not heard any talk like that in Cleveland, you know, using the queue as a mass vaccination center, having multiple lines. They're doing it elsewhere. I wonder why no one's talking about it here, probably because they failed to even talk to each other to coordinate before the vaccine started arriving. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. He just started his new term a few weeks ago, but Congressman Jim Jordan already has a challenger if he seeks re-election. Jane Cahoon, we talked earlier that he may be in the running for senator, so it might not matter. But who is this challenger and why does he say he's running? Why has he announced so early? Yeah, this is a guy from Lima. He's a warehouse manager and Army veteran by the name of Jeffrey Seitz. He unsuccessfully tried last time around to win the Democratic nomination to run against Jordan, but he said he was motivated by the U.S. Capitol riot and Jordan's continued loyalty to Trump during the aftermath of that incident. And so that prompted him to decide to announce early that he's running again. He says Jordan, you know, bears responsibility for this insurrection and that all he does is parrot Trump on on everything. You know, unfortunately, number one, this guy isn't isn't well known or well funded He's, he had the bad timing to make his announcement on the same day that Rob Portman announced he wasn't seeking 
uh, re-election. So he, he's got an uphill battle even to win the nomination, let alone to try to unseat somebody like Jordan, who won last time with 68 percent of the vote. Um, but, granted, he, he you know, Jordan might be running for Senate or maybe for, for a governor. But um, but the lines will be changed, right? Yeah, the that's a point. I, that's one unknown here is what the district's going to look like, because we will have redistricting before the 2022 election. Um, and this fourth congressional district that Jordan represents probably won't be as severely gerrymandered as it is now. I mean, right now, this district goes from like Lorain County south to just outside Columbus, and then it goes west to to near the Indiana border. It's got like parts of 14 counties in it. So, however, and another important thing to note is that this part of the state where Jordan is from is very conservative. So even if they do redraw the lines, my opinion is it's still likely going to favor a conservative Republican. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Well, that'll do it. Are we expecting any uh, big announcements from Mike DeWine at his coronavirus briefing today? I don't know. You know, maybe he'll say, um, I'm giving John Houston permission to run for the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> Who would be his running mate if he if Houston left? Those guys have been like the tag team for the past. Maybe Josh Mandel. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, something to look forward to when the briefing comes. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow. Come and join us.